I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Attitude City, a song by my guest today on the program, Nils Lofgren. Let me tell you a little bit about Nils Lofgren. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in the 80s watching MTV forensically, there are certain things you just can't get out of your brain. My list is a long one, but whether it's Peter Wolf of the Jay Giles Band running through the high school halls in the centerfold video, or Prince playing that blazing guitar solo in Let's Go Crazy, or Michael Hutchins of NXS holding court in an airplane hangar with the kind of rock and roll authority that summoned the Rolling Stones at their most commanding. Those are the images I just cannot get out of my brain. They're hardwired in there, and they'll never leave. So when someone says, you know, Michael Hutchins, or the Jay Giles Band, or Prince, I immediately think of those things. Now, when someone says Nils Lofgren, well... I have a very specific image in my head to go with that name. And the one major difference Nils Lofgren had with the people I just mentioned? Well, he was in midair. His feet were not on the ground. Now, my memory is just like yours. I add things in, I take things out, and uh, I put things back in that were never there in the first place. So when I got the opportunity to interview Nils Lofgren, well, it got me thinking. And I started to wonder if all those flips I imagined him taking in those videos were actually real. Now, let me tell you why I was doubting myself. About 10 years ago, I was at a party, and I was talking about the NXS video for Don't Change. And the person I was talking to had never seen the video. So I went blow by blow, all the cool things. By the way, this was a terrible party, obviously. I went through all the things about that video that made it so great. Then I came home and I was like, well, I haven't seen that video in a long time either. Pulled it up on YouTube and all the things I remembered were not there. It was like I was making up an entirely new video. I could have sworn everything I said was real, but everything I said was wrong. To be fair, some things I was close on, 
but like 90% of it I was way off on. I mean, like embarrassingly off. In fact, if the person I was talking to was like, oh, Alex really sold me on that video, I'm going to go home and watch it. They would watch it, and when they were done, they would realize that I was insane. All right, so back to Nils Lofgren. The song that I was thinking about was for a clip called Across the Tracks. The video came out in 1983 when I was just 13 years old. And in that video, I remember Nils Lofgren doing a couple of very specific things. One, a lot of flips in his Chuck Taylors. Two, I think at one point he broke through a window. Three, I, I think he was actually dancing on the tracks because those were the days where you had a very literal interpretation of your song. And four, I remember him breakdancing next to himself while he played guitar. They had two Nils Lofgrens, obviously uh, a trick of the camera, but uh, he was accompanying himself on guitar with some very impressive breakdancing moves. I remember all those things, and I remember at the time thinking to myself, wow, this new Nils Lofgren guy, he's really athletic. Now, I had not seen that video in 36 years, so I pulled it up and checked it out just to see if I was right, and guess what? I was. All of those things I remembered were there. The only thing I was wrong about is when I said this new Nils Lofgren guy. In fact, in 1983, this new Nils Lofgren guy was far from new. Let me explain. By 1983, Nils Lofgren had already had a full career, and he was only 32. But by then, the Chicago-born, D.C.-raised guitarist had formed the band Grin, who one night in Georgetown had run into Neil Young. They all hit it off, and Lofgren joined Young's band at 19, playing on After the Gold Rush and Tonight's the Night, and he became a member of Crazy Horse. Lofgren put out four records with Grin, and starting with 1975's self-titled effort, he's put out a staggering 27 solo albums. To just give you a little perspective, in 1983, when I thought he was brand new, the album he had just put out was called Wonderland, and it was his 11th solo album. So, if that was the whole story of Nils Lofgren's career, that'd be a great story, and that'd be a great career. But guess what? That's only part of it. I haven't even mentioned his work with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. But I'm about to. Lofgren joined the E Street Band in 1984, replacing Stephen Van Zant for the group's upcoming Born in the USA tour. In baseball terms, that's kind of like being traded from one team to the other and your new team is about to start the World Series. To date, Lofgren has done 11 tours with Springsteen, and he's played on 10 of his albums, including The Rising, Tunnel of Love, and Wrecking Ball. Over the course of his career, he's collaborated with Lou Graham, Jerry Williams, Jerry Lee Lewis, Ringo Starr, Willie Nelson, and Martin Sexton. Lofgren was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2014 as a member of the E Street Band. And his adopted home state of Arizona elected him to their Hall of Fame as well. His new album, Blue with Lou, features five tracks he wrote with Lou Reed, and it's one of my favorite records he's ever done. So, without further ado, here's my chat with Nils Lofgren. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Yeah, it was a great month with dear friends, my brother, 
some of my favorite people ever to play with. And uh, we kept the shows kind of improv and reckless. We jammed a lot, tried things. You know, no song was ever the same two nights in a row. Uh, you know, we changed four or five songs a night. So anyway, we had a good time. It was a thrill to play with an electric band for the for me for the first time with my own music in probably 17 years or so. So uh, it was great. It was fun. And, you know, having brother Tommy along was a joy. And uh, so back home now, on to the next, and uh, going to keep trying to spread the word on my new record I'm proud of. And uh, but the tour went great. I didn't realize there was such an improvisational element to the live shows. That must be fun. Yeah, you know, I mean, certainly you want to present the core of the songs so people that are maybe familiar with them and could enjoy them, you don't want to get away from the core. But, you know, whether it's soloing or a longer intro, um, nobody's, uh, I actually encourage the bands to improv and as long as you understand the song, any ideas they have that are different is just going to enhance and surprise you because they understand what the core needs to be. So um, it's just kind of a throwback. I played classical accordion for almost nine years and entered contests, and my whole musical world from five years old was um, playing the written note, and and that was a requirement, and trying to interpret emotionally inside the notes. So when I fell in love with blues guitar one of the great concepts of it was there's no written note basically you're improving and playing what you feel and um for me anyway that was still such a continued joy and revelation that uh that's a big part of my shows is not requiring anyone i mean obviously if there's some signature lick you want to do something that uh, represents it enough but you can see play around even with those as long as the core of it's there for the audience. Is there a kind of nerve-wracking element when you're doing improvisational stuff live, or it must be as exciting as it is scary? Yeah, both. I mean, I, at this point, um, last September was 50 years on the road, so I wouldn't call it nerve-wracking, more just exciting. And also, I've long ago realized that, you know, every night's not going to be you know, you can't expect to surpass the night before if you're doing, you know, five, 6,000 shows over the course of 50 years. You just have to, I call it going fishing. You know, it's like, all right, we're going to try something different. Oh, the drummer did something. Let me go down that road and give yourself permission that if, uh, in, in this case, sometimes Kevin, the bass player, was so extraordinary, and Andy would start doing some funky groove. And if I joined in and I, I uh, felt like what I was doing was a little bit sloppy, or not quite in the pocket, I just stopped playing. I turned my guitar off. I'd walk over to Tom, my brother Tommy on the keyboards, and we'd just stand there not doing anything, watching Andy and Kevin go to town. And uh, obviously that's something I can't do when I'm alone with an acoustic guitar. Right. You're always on, so to speak. So, And then other times you get into something that really is kind of feeling special, and you're in a deep pocket, and you just roll with it. You just keep going, and Sometimes the other guys will like lay back and let you take it, and I'll give them a nod like, hey, don't want to make you, but could use a little help here, or, or just like to hear your instrument, what are you hearing here? And It's very free-form and fun, but still within the context of the songs, of course. Is there like a sort of a post-show 
uh, discussion about oh how'd that go or do you, do you guys even 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 need to have that discussion after after each well game? I mean it, it could be useful but in this case we didn't rehearse a lot we, the goal was to you know take the band that made the album out on the road and promote it and, and keep it fun and reckless and um, keep it things always grow in front of an audience to me that's where you learn the most and I think everyone in the band. <clears throat> probably would agree with that especially if you give yourself permission to experiment so you know we talked about maybe some special moment that happened but never along the lines of oh we better do that again uh, or let's make sure that stays in the show because then then you're like settling like oh okay well that's the special moment now in the intro and uh, two three nights later if you don't do that something else may happen that's you know, not necessarily, you know, you, you know, you don't evaluate like, well, that's more special. So that's the new bit. We tried to stay away from bits and just go that, Hey, that was a magical moment. Whether it happens again or not, we, we kind of just left it unsaid and would leave it up to the moment and the night, depending on what the energy in the room was. How did the new, I say new songs, but the, but the ones that you, that you did with, with Lou, how did those how did those go live? How did you like those in a live setting? Well, we, we wound up doing about five or six songs from the album. Um, and like anything else, you know, every time we did them, they grew. Uh, but we had a good starting spot because it was the band that made the record. And Andy and I um, and Kevin did a lot of rehearsals. We actually worked up 20 songs before we even bothered to try recording a single track. So we were a band with way more songs than we needed for an album. And, you know, if we got bogged down, we'd just go to another song, come back to it to keep it fresh. But they all worked fine live. And, of course, um, just the repetition of it, every time you play them, they, they get a little more muscular. People get a little more secure inside the song and may start experimenting and stretching out a bit more, which is always fun. Uh, I want to talk to you about the record because it's it's kind of a revelation. It's uh, It's a remarkable remarkable um piece of work and the, thank the, you i love it man i really do and and i and i actually say i have to confess i i didn't know uh about your work with lou reed at all I, that was totally new to me um yeah you know when when it happened i mean look we bob ezrin a really famous producer was working with me and the short story um Lou put three of the songs on the Bells album. And, you know, it wasn't, again, there wasn't an internet back then. It wasn't like I was, uh, you know, I wasn't some massive hit record artist. So there wasn't a lot of press about it. It was just like, oh, written by Lofgren and Reed. And, and three of them were on my record. I put out a couple after that. But, you know, there wasn't some big fanfare because it wasn't, you know, I'm just not a massive uh, hit artist with uh, a track record of hit records, and uh, I'm still kind of off the grid and under the radar a bit. So it just didn't get a lot of attention other than people might have, yeah, I talked about it a bit. But again, it, it, the ones that got left behind, I always thought Lou and I might re readdress ourselves separately or together, and I could, took good care of them, and the notebooks were protected and my lyric notebook drawer. But then when we lost Lou, I realized, man, I just can't let these things go forever unheard. And I knew I had to get him on my, my next record, which, which we did. That was one of the main goals. Were you in touch with Lou over the years? 
Well, in the sense, I would go um, see him play uh, when I was living in Washington, D.C. or L.A. Um, when I did the, uh, oh, maybe five, six, six years after the Bells came out and, and my record, Nils, I did a Damaged Goods record, and there was another song called Life that was so brilliant, and Branford Marsalis played some beautiful sax on it. And We were mixing in New York City, so I called Lou, and he happened to be home. I said, look, we're doing this song Life, um, and it came out great. Do you, any interest in hearing it? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, just please hold hold it where you are and, and let me give me a half hour to get up there. And he came to the studio and had a good visit about it, put him in the director's chair, if you will, and set it in front of a set of great speakers and played it for him. And, you know, there was a small string section. Branford Marsalis, of course, just one of the great musicians ever. And, you know, Lou just loved it. He felt great about it, which made us feel good. But, again, I the, the five that got left behind, I always thought we might revisit them together, and that idea was lost when, when we, you know, Lou passed, sadly. And uh, City Lights also, he did a narration of a song we wrote, actually used my chorus. He loved my chorus, and he said, I'm going to write, I'm writing a story about Charlie Chaplin, but I want to keep your chorus because I sent him all these ideas with the idea that we weren't in love with any of the lyrics. We were hoping he could change anything, lyrics, music, whatever, if there was any inspiration at all. So I was, of course, shocked when he woke me up at 4.30 in the morning and <laughs> said he'd been up for three days and nights, had completed 13 finished sets of lyrics he loved and was happy to dictate them to me. So <laughs> it was a magical, magical chapter and I, I knew these other five that no one had ever heard had to had to be on this record. What do you think made uh, Lou such a special songwriter? I mean, he was really unique. Well, I, I mean, again, he would tell you, and that's one of the reasons we approached it as we did. I was uh, kind of uh, what well, we we spent a long night at his apartment watching a Cowboys Redskins NFL game, talking about co-writing. Did we want to rent a loft, get some instruments, slog it out six eight hours a day? And uh, I talked about the reason I have all this music is uh, music comes more naturally to me, and usually it's a bit better, and, and the lyrics take a bit more work. And he was like, I'm the exact opposite. I write words all the time and feel good about them, and that's my forte. Music takes a bit more work, and that led to the idea of sending what I had already before we just started working in a loft together in New York City, slogging through ideas. And... Um, you know, but that to me, uh, look, his, his I still one of my favorite tracks is the live version of uh, Sweet Jane. In fact, we did it one night in New York City to end one of my shows, just as a nod to Lou. But his lyrics, uh, between the, you know, obviously the wit, the uh, the rough edges, the kind of profane, irreverent nature of them, but still there was this deep. Uh, kind of reverence for life, art, and, and compassion in a, in, a, in a rough way a lot of times. He just had a really unique way that, and he said it himself, you know, I just naturally kind of write words that I feel pretty good about. It's, it's what was his forte, and, you know, still is, and, and that's one of the reasons, of course, Bob Ashton suggested we reach out to him first, and I was, thought it was an unlikely idea that worked out beautifully. Was he an intimidating guy to, to be around? No, because um, 
first of all, I'm a, a big fan. I, I've been on the road 50 years back then. I don't know what it was, but you know, I was working with Bob Ezrin, someone that was a friend and respected Lou. And I think after his initial con conversation with Lou, when Lou said, well, you know, why don't you come over and meet me at the studio and we'll just talk it through briefly. I don't think it would have even got that far without Bob Ezrin's introduction and proffering the idea and Lou being somewhat open to it initially. Um, so, you know, when we met, he was friendly, he was working, and he was the one who suggested, Nils, come, why don't you meet me at my apartment next week and we can, you know, take a lot more time to get into this idea and talk it through. And I, we did. We spent a long night together, and that led to the idea since I had so much music uh, where, you know, and, and melodies and titles and all that. And I, I even said, do you want me to just send you la-di-da melodies and take away the titles? And he said, no, 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 send everything you have. I know you don't want to use the words. Um, I know I have carte blanche to change anything, including the music, but I prefer to hear every everything you have of where you're at with these 13 songs it was I sent on a cassette, the high-quality tape of the day. It's funny because I, and I think you'll understand this, but I... I don't think of Lou Reed as like a human being. So the idea of you guys watching football, it just, it just it's such a strange idea. <laughs> well, admittedly, admittedly, again, there's a lot of icebreakers. You have Bob Ezra making a phone call where Lou could have said, oh, great idea. I'm not into it. Right. And that would have been the end of it. Well, going to the studio and meeting him. And, you know, after spending just 10 minutes with me and Bob, uh, there was nothing about the concept or me that turned him off, which, you know, there shouldn't have been, but he was open to it initially. So that was the biggest start. And then when I got to his house, um, obviously we're, we're two people that are creative. Uh, I certainly had great respect for him and didn't hide that. And, you know, he, he knew I had been at it for a long time and was working with somebody he admired, Bob Ezrin. So there was a lot of footwork right there. And the fact that, uh, I just was so shocked. He said, look, I'm a big NFL fan. I love the Dallas Cowboys. The Cowboys are playing the Redskins. And I laughed and I said, man, I was already gearing up to miss the game. I grew up in D.C. I'm a huge Redskins fan. I'd love to watch the game. I was already kind of, you know, ready to miss it because we were going to, you know, talk through this co-writing. And we both had a good laugh about it and really enjoyed the game. And um, the fact that I don't even remember who won is a testament to uh, the excitement I had about the co-writing idea. And then after the game and during it, we casually talked about it. And then afterwards, we spent a couple hours uh, getting into it in earnest and came up with the plan uh, that happened with, you know, sending him a tape first of everything, uh, giving him carte blanche to change everything and anything, knowing we were really looking for lyrics. Uh, but any anything that inspired him to change, we were up for it. And, you know, that led to... 13 finished songs together, which was, you know, kind of an extraordinary, magical thing that doesn't happen a lot. But I put a lot of time and work into those songs and ideas before I sent him the tape. And like he self-admitted, self words come very naturally to me. And uh, he woke me up and said, hey, I've been very inspired and I love the tape. And I've been up three days and nights straight working on stuff. And um, I'm waking you up at 4.30 in the morning because I have 13 finished sets of lyrics that I feel great about. And just kind of a magical thing all the way around.
Yeah, I mean, if, if Lou Reed calls you at 4.30 in the morning and says, get a pen, you, you get a pen. Of course. I mean, I was wondering what the, about the hour, but not that much. I mean, I know, look, I, I'm, when I get home, I get up very early, like crazy early with the sun sometimes. When I'm on the road, I'm a completely different animal, and the shows wind me up to the point where I just struggle sleeping. I've accepted it, and, you know, you can whatever, read a book, soak in a hot tub, but you're just wound up late into the night after a show. And uh, so, you know, it didn't startle me that much. I was happy to hear from Lou because I thought the idea had gone by the wayside in the sense he was just too busy to address it. It came as a big, beautiful surprise to me. No, I know you you mentioned, uh, you know, growing up in D.C., and I I knew you were born in Chicago and you reside in Arizona now and you're in the Arizona Music Hall of Fame. How do you self-identify in terms of uh, where you're from? Like, do you consider yourself a, a DC guy? Like, or do you even think in those terms? Well, not really. I mean, it's all kind of just the, the truth is fine with me. I was born in Chicago. I still love Chicago. My wife Amy and I, whenever we go there, we it's one of our favorite towns. Probably irrespective of me being born there, I've had deep memories of eight or nine years there before my dad took a job in Washington, D.C. My formative years were in Maryland, growing up in the suburbs, Bethesda, Maryland, and the D.C. music scene was great in the 60s, a lot of places to play, and uh, that's where my band Grin started from. But very young age, I was 17, we, we hit the road and played a lot. We struck out with some auditions for record deals in New York City, so we went to L.A., and uh, you know, I would sneak in backstage anywhere I could and ask for advice because I didn't know what I was doing and neither did my band uh, as young professionals, if you will, looking for a record deal with original music and walked in on Neil Young 50 years ago, a couple weeks ago, uh, his first tour with Crazy Horse. And uh, true to his word, you know, he, I mean, he said, look, he let me play songs for him. He really liked them. We spent a couple of days together. I watched four of their shows, two a night at the cellar door. And he knew my band was headed to L.A. in a few weeks. Said, look me up when you get there. And we did. And true to his word, he took us under his wing, turned us on to David Briggs. And his Neil was, you know, entering into Karate Souls and Nash and becoming a superstar. Uh, David Briggs moved me into his home and really shepherded us through our first four records and worked on my first two solo records and was they were by far the two greatest mentors i've had um and i've had quite a few you know but uh that was really a a special time and uh back then too there was no video there was no internet there were no cell phones uh the only game in town was to play in front of people even you know initially we were playing little cover bands at teen clubs in the mid 60s i mean we worshiped the beatles and the stones and hendrix but nobody thought you could do that for a living so it really was strange uh almost possession uh, one night i went and saw uh, a show with uh the who backed up by herman's hermits and the blues magoos and then we all ran over to see Jimi hendrix experience his late show at the ambassador theater pete townsend was actually in the audience and Jimmy was my favorite guitarist. Him and Jeff Beck, I always thought, were kind of off on their own somewhere. And Jeff keeps getting better. He's just stunning, stunning how great he is. But I walked out of that um, Hendrix show after that night of music, possessed with the idea that I had to try being a rock musician. And 
sure enough, I hit the road shortly after at 17, and not knowing a thing, I tried to solicit advice when I could with various degrees of success, and I hit the jackpot with Neil in the sense that he was friendly, he let me sing him some songs, he liked them, he invited me to hang out for a couple of days, and he'd call me from the road when he left, just reminded me to look him up when we got to L.A., and, and you know, to this day, 50 years ago, I've had so many great chapters making music with Neil and Ralphie and course, Danny Whitten joined the band to make the first Crazy Horse record with Jack Mitchie. Right. Sadly, the only only record, Crazy Horse record with Danny Whitten. We lost Danny, and that led to the Wake album, Tonight's Tonight, because all of a sudden everyone started dying. Um, look, man, it's just 50 years. I'm looking back now. It's not a short amount of time. And, I mean, I've been so preoccupied making this new record, and trying to keep it live in the studio. Well, we did keep it live in the studio, the, the the initial tracking with the three of us. Keep the touches mostly vocal, no, no isolation boost, no drum tracks, just played in the room, let the instruments bleed into each other. Um, you know, Amy produced it with me. We moved the band and crew into our property and got a Winnebago for the, the tech, and we all just kind of lived it and breathed it for a few weeks and tracked to me, you know, as, as great a record as I've made and uh, kept it very earthy. And I practiced for months and months and months after I had 20 songs. I like to be able to sing and play everything live without, oh, I got to write a better line in the bridge. I'm not sure about that melody, but let's cut the track. I mean, I've done all that, but I've gotten older and less patient with overdubbing, which I do, but I'm by far at my best singing live. So, you know, one of the requirements was get those six Lou Reed songs on the record, do everything live in the studio, no drum quick track ever. And, you know, you really don't need one with Andy Newmark and Kevin McCormick. <laughs> but anyway, there were a lot of musts that took a couple years from concept to uh, fruition. And I'm glad I stuck to my guns and had the help of dear friends. And then just to icing on the cake was to take them on the road with Cindy. Myzel, who sang all over the record beautifully, and my brother Tommy, who's been working with me the longest since the early days in Grin. Across the tracks, there's a girl who loves me just as much as I love her. We are unified, still crucified, just because we live across the tracks. And pretend to play 
Ain't it sad how families make you run? If my daddy ever caught me kissing her, I believe he would shoot his son. But we're growing up, and there'll come a day when the real world makes us run away. Now we live in shame and play their silly game. Soon we'll be gone, and I won't have to say. Cross the tracks, there's a girl who loves me just as much. may sound like a weird question but I, I was wondering what was your take on punk rock when when punk rock hit were you were you aware of that and, and did it do anything for you i was so wrapped up in my own journey kind of tunnel vision at the time which was i'm either in the studio making a record or out on the road promoting it worrying about or at least trying to address the next batch of songs for the next record so you know i paid attention to it but um i was much more preoccupied with my journey um, as a musician, trying to become more successful at making music and sharing it. Uh, I like some of it. I mean, some of the great bands I, you know, I liked and uh, the Sex Pistols and, um, you know, I paid attention to it, but I, I didn't kind of get in deep and study it. I just hear, I, like like today, you know, you hear something, I'm like, damn, who is that? I gotta, I gotta get that. Uh, it doesn't matter who it is or what you call it or what the genre is. If it moves you emotionally, you seek it out, and that's the beauty of music. But yeah, it, it affected me. There was some great stuff, but I, I didn't, you know, jump into the deep end with it. It was just another, you know, bunch of new new bands with a lot of energy and a different take on things that was, you know, emotionally inspiring at times and at its best. Were you a Velvet Underground fan? Yeah, we when, again before we decided to be professional musicians, um, we would you know back. I think the first FM radio station was WHFS in Bethesda, Maryland. Damian Einstein, his dad actually let him be a DJ, and we were in high school together. We used to go down and you know we played the Blues Project, the Velvet Underground. It was like that concept of there is no top ten, there's no top forty, or top twenty. I'm just playing you know, hundreds of different types of records uh, that have nothing to do with each other sometimes. And that whole, you know, birth of FM really started there. And so we were kind of in the ground floor and benefited from that. But sure, we were fans of the Velvet Underground and, and you know, kept an eye on Lou as he went his own way after that. And in fact, while I was making the record, I, I read uh, Anthony Curtis's book, um, the biography on Lou, just to oh, yeah. just kind of have that in the backdrop in my psyche as I was working on the record, and that was helpful. You know, looking over your career, Nils, I, I mean, people seem to like you. You're you're a good collaborative musician, and I think for a lot of people listening to this show um, who are aspiring artists of any kind, whether it's music or writing or painting, it doesn't matter. Um, I think being someone who can 
be open to collaboration is an incredible strength and not as easy as it sounds. Um, well, uh, before I forget, too, the author of Lou Reed, A Life, was Anthony D. Curtis. Yeah. Anthony D. Curtis. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, I still, I still remember um, I was just 18 years old when um, Neil and David asked me to do the After the Gold Rush record. I was living in Topanga Canyon with David Briggs, and I still remember driving in his beat-up VW to Neil's house where we recorded After the Gold Rush with a remote truck at his house in the Topanga Hills. I still remember saying, David, it's, it's, it's so neat not to be the boss every day. And just the idea of being in a band and not having to play every lead, not having to sing every song, getting to sing harmonies, getting to play piano, which scared me to death because I wasn't a professional piano player. Um, just getting, and, and very at a very young age, I realized how freeing and enjoy and enjoyable that was for me, particularly as I grew up. Of course, I realized most solo artists don't want to do that. They want to be in charge. They want to be working on their songs. But at a young age, it wasn't forced. It was just something I realized I really took to and enjoyed. And it actually inspired me uh, to take a break from being the boss, if you will, and working only on my music and my songs. And when I came back to my next chapter, I, I felt a, a different, fresher excitement about what I was doing than if I never took a break from it. The difference is, instead of taking like two years off and kind of being musically rusty, I was deeply involved in, in a band presenting someone else's vision of their songs. So musically, I was pretty sharp. I, I didn't have the rust. I was just kind of excited about my next chapter, but you know, my musical heart and head had been in the game with someone else. So it, 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 they, I continue to go back and forth and truly embrace it and enjoy it. It's just not something you can fake, but it just was always a natural transition for me. And maybe the secret to being a great collaborator <clears throat> is, is not having a huge ego too, I guess. Yeah. And, and even though I'm, I'm certainly grateful for my reputation as a guitarist, you know, I fell in love with the Beatles. That's how I got off of classical accordion and the Stones and the British Invasion, Staxville, Motown, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf. But it was always it always started with the core of a song. It was always about the song and playing the song. And and as a singer, even when I'm playing with someone else, I'm always listening to the to the vocal and just naturally kind of staying out of the way. Like there's just a natural instinct well there's you know i don't hear anything here because the singer's singing if maybe if i w wasn't a songwriter i might be more inclined to look for places to put licks in but i'm always listening to the singer and the song first and try and embellish around that whatever instrument is in my hand um and i think that served me really well as i work with others and also, I mean, the fact that you've maintained friendships in a in a difficult business to maintain friendships because it's, it's a competitive, ego-driven business, um, also I think speaks to your um, strength as a collaborator. Yeah, it, it was just very organic. And um, look, I think it's all ultimately you gravitate to what's natural for you and in your blood. But having Neil Young and David Briggs as my mentor starting at 17 years old, you know, shortly after I hit the road, was a huge imprint and a huge um, kind of, uh, you know, 
pathway. They were like pathfinders to keep me on the right path. And um, just being around those guys, making records, being under David's wing as a producer and a friend, uh, I'm sure I <laughs> we, we had a shortcut to a lot of great lessons that otherwise might have taken you know extra years to get to, or maybe never. And it just was uh, just great, great um, help and advice and inspiration and example at a very young age. It kind of helped me steer clear of a lot of wasted time making mistakes. You know, I'd make anyway, but I always kind of had that lifeline of here's how you do it by some, you know, young masters that were finding their way and learning. But they were they were pretty well on their way by the time I, I ran into Neil and David. Have you always been pretty good about taking a note? I mean, just in terms of, you know, criticism or input, um, you don't take it personally. You you know where it's coming from and you know how to sort of, um, you know, uh, integrate it into what you're doing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm a human being. I would say uh, I'm not overly sensitive, but um, I'm a human. So if somebody, uh, you know, gives me a bad review, uh, I'm disappointed, um, and I'll pay attention to it. I won't take it completely to heart, but I'll, I won't dismiss it at all. And if they have valid points, I'll, I'll, you know, take it to heart and remember them. Just the same. If somebody like goes crazy with praise, I'll, I'll be grateful. But I'm still kind of integrating it into the work I did and the vision I have of what I did and accomplished, what it is and what it isn't. But it's all useful, I think. Uh, certainly, I prefer a good review to a bad one, but I try to make it all useful to help me keep growing and learning. What about the discipline of having been an athlete? I mean, with in, in terms of like, because um, I was a tennis player, and I know that, you know, when you're doing something athletic and you have, that takes an incredible amount of discipline and precision, especially, you know, gymnastics. Um, <clears throat> did you find that, that there was a sort of a, something in common it had something in common with music as well in terms of the the practice that it took yeah it's funny there's two elements to that one the gymnastics in junior high i fell in love with um i look i was a a a jock i played a lot of football basketball soccer and um i was pretty fit you know and um when i got into gymnastics it stunned me because i pretty much couldn't do anything I was like, I thought I was strong. I thought I was healthy, but it, it kind of involved different muscle groups doing different things. But I did fall in love with it in junior high and worked hard at it. And that work ethic was helpful because, you know, you, you go from, from not, hey, guys, come on, come on, Pete, come on, Dale. You go from not being able to do anything to having a coach help you learn, here's how you practice this. Here's, you know, if you're going to work out, here's the muscles to work on or you got to stretch more and here's what's involved. So that was useful. But even more so um, basketball which and, and football. Okay, I played a lot, but at some point playing tackle football is just too deadly. Um, but the idea of those sports, I, I think, actually was even more up my alley about free form, spontaneous, spur of the moment, stay in the moment reactions, which basketball which you know i played probably 20 hours a week most of my life till 10 years ago when i had both hips replaced um because i just destroyed them completely 
between, you know, stage flips off trampolines and jumping off drum risers and PA stacks and, you know, playing basketball in city courts all over the world. Uh, but, you know, you, you throw a bad pass in a basketball game, you know, literally sometimes a half a second later, someone's throwing you the ball and you have a chance to pass or shoot and you're just in the moment reacting and, you know, trusting your instincts and a love of a game. And that reminds me a lot of the kind of shows I like to play, which are improv, you know. There's times when you hear something different and you just go at it. You know, I call it going fishing. And you're not afraid to just go fish and look for something magical and trust your instincts. Other times, you know, it's okay to just sit there and play the song, you know, give a backdrop for someone else that might be experimenting or getting out. Sometimes everyone's going at the same time and you find something really special or, you know, it's okay, but, you know, you realize, oh, let's pull back. And it's just very interactive, much like a a live game. Basketball is my favorite because even in football, you know, the you get tackled, the play's over, you go huddle up, got a, a break. And in basketball, there's never a break. You're constantly passing, shooting, playing defense, working against someone much better than you, but you learn tricks how to contribute anyway or how you deal with this. And, and all of that kind of reminds me very much of the improv nature of the shows I do, and not just with my bands. I mean, I've worked with people, um, been blessed to work of course, you know, some of the more notable bands like East Street and Crazy Horse and Ringo's bands with Patty Scalfo's bands, some some work with Willie Nelson, still that same kind of freedom to improvise uh, and trust that, you know, you're hearing the song first and whatever you hear, if you go for it, it's likely to, you know, fit the song and work and not be afraid of that. And uh, I don't think I've ever could have a band I was happier with in this last run where between Tommy who's done thousands of shows with me and records and Kevin and Andy and Cindy I trusted them all to just okay here's the foundation let's all improvise and work from it surprise each other and look for those special moments all the time which we did and that was a real joy and that does remind me more of um, like the freedom of of a you know work, work in progress which is improv basketball if you will um, even players today, I mean, they're so great, but they're set plays and, you know, instantly somebody <laughs> throws a wedge in your play. So you go, go to what feels right next and all the training and all the practice, uh, to me anyway, when you walk out with a great band that goes out the window and if you've prepared enough, you can kind of turn your mind off for the most part, trust your musical instincts to react and you have this foundation of a set list with good songs you you know will work, and you can just kind of go from there and, and let everyone contribute and surprise themselves and you with a collective night of hopefully inspired music that you know people will feel it, and hopefully some of that hope and musical inspiration will linger as they take it away with them out of the building. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm 49, and I and I my first image of you, you know, having grown up in the 80s when I was 15 or 16, is is you were airborne, and that I was like, who's that guy? Uh, but it makes sense to me that you would have integrated athletics into your art. Yeah, I got a it's funny. I one of the phrases I coined years ago called Rockleite. Um, there's there's some <laughs> video at my site. Uh, I've got a Rockality page, which is there's a couple stories I wrote. I want to do video versions of that coming up in the next year or so because I've got a lot of good stories. But 
on the Rockality page, there's a lot of my old flips and high bars and gymnastics stunts in the video. And I always knew that that was going to be more and more a part of music past, you know, the extraordinary physicality of a James Brown, you know. Um, and, of course, you see that inspiring, uh, uh, you know, a musical giant like Prince and taking all that into his own, you know, version of that kind of uh, physicality. Um and then, you know, the the one person who actually, of course, for years and years, you'd see some of the great pop artists hire the Cirque du Soleil performers to be doing all the bungee flips and climbing up walls and right. flipping down them. And then you get an artist like Pink, who actually went and became a great gymnast Cirque du Soleil performer. And she would do all the stunts herself while she sang, which, of course, is the height of a rock lead to me. Yeah, that was pretty incredible. I, I I loved the fact that she took that on and integrated that. That was cool. Yeah, that's no that's no small feat. That no. Pr- pretty much, I think she, uh, for the most part, took that physicality and incorporated it personally into her show to a height that I, I don't think we've ever seen before. And I think I think Springsteen is obviously one of the great athletic performers on stage as well. Um, where you know, and I like the idea of a physical show. It's it's exhilarating to watch. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things I love working with Bruce. Or, um, you know, there's a lot of improv, the the physicality and the length of the show. Look, at this point, you know, you're, you're leaving my. I have I've got a fabulous wife, Amy, of 23 years. Our dogs are like our children. So leaving home is no fun anymore. And when you're away from home. You know, now the only reason I left home was for the show. So all the work, all the practice, I mean, I'm getting ready to turn 68. You wind up having to go to the gym and deal with an injury or stretch out because you're getting old. (laughs) And just try to get in shape for a show so that you can kind of let your musicality fly. Um, But once you're out there, man, you know, the last thing you want to do is play a 70-minute set, safe set, and walk off with, you know, barely a sweat. You want to get drenched you want to get down in it you want to make each night different and unusual and really feel spent and it gives you a little more comfort when you're you know back home alone in the hotel room you check on your family okay everyone's alive and okay you get ready to do it again the next day and it's a great focus especially you know to deal with you know being away from home which is no longer a joy at all. I mean, when we're all kids, of course, every motel room door was a magical experience to open. Every airport terminal was exciting. And, you know, I had that those days and I enjoyed them immensely. And now I'm in a different phase where uh, it's almost like the homesickness gives me more of a gratitude and focus on the show itself. And it it has more uh, importance to me maybe than it ever did. And, And I'm so grateful for the opportunity and, and a bit of wisdom and and confidence that it, that is just natural when you do something for 50 years. How did you recalculate your own physicality after the the two hip replacements? Yeah, that was scary. You know, I limped on for a few years. Uh, both hips were bone on bone. I remember, uh, you know, I kept getting X-rays and people say, "Man, you know, you got to get these replaced," and I kept holding off and. I uh, was in New York City, actually, and um, saw Dr. Paul Polici, who wound up doing both hip replacements at the same time 10 years ago at HSS, Hospital for Special Surgery. He was like, look, if you and your wife want to get here, I'll do them both at the same time. And 
uh, I was we're playing at Giant Stadium with the E Street Band, and um, I, I came up with this idea because he said, I, you know, I'd said, well, look, I'm think I didn't tell anyone, I didn't tell Bruce, I was thinking of doing a dive roll in the middle of. Uh, I used to do a dive roll um, in the band introductions uh, when the flip went out of the show for a while. I did do a dive roll with my guitar on across the stage. And that was, you know, decades earlier. So now fast forward to the early 2000s or whatever. I, we were at Giant Stadium, and I um, worked out doing a dive roll, and I talked to the, you know, the future surgeon about it. He said, well, look, man, it, it, you're, you're in pain all the time anyway. There's no cartilage left to destroy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage it, but it's not like there's any cartilage left to damage, and you're going to have to get these replaced. So I... Um, thought it would just be a great moment i didn't i wasn't sure i'd have the nerve to do it so i went to the video um gentleman chris who was so great and i said look chris and because the night you know i usually am out front and you'll see me hopping backwards and i go into my pirouette spin near the end of the solo i'm not sure i'm going to do it but of course the whole point is you know it's showbiz and you don't want to do something that nobody sees because you know you're just a speck up there so i said look if you see me hopping back and I just hop back to Max and I'll be going into my pirouette, if all of a sudden I take a dramatic turn and start hopping across the stage towards Clarence, that means I'm getting some real estate and I'm going to go sprinting as fast as I can at Bruce, do a dive roll during the solo, pop up in front of him and go into my pirouette. But if you don't see me hopping towards Clarence, I'm not going to do it. And he was the only person in the entire stadium that knew about it. And uh, the moment came, and I just was feeling my oats and all warmed up and sweaty and hot. And I thought, yeah, man, I mean, you get to a point where you're so wound up and there's so much adrenaline. Instead of, you know, agony, your hips just, they hurt. They don't kill you, you know, because you're so wound up. So I started hopping back, and I hopped at Clarence, and I, I didn't tell him what I was going to do, but I said, Clarence, if I start hopping at you, don't panic. I'm just, you know, <laughs> keep an eye on me. And so he got out of my way, and I hopped about 20 feet towards him, and then I just tore Bruce running full speed, and he was looking at me like, what's this about? And then I just went airborne, did a dive roll, came, you know, you land on your neck because you're holding the guitar, so it's kind of, you got to have a lot of forward motion to roll through it and not damage your neck too much. And I popped up in front of him and went right into the um, the pirouette thing I do at the end of the solo. And he got a great laugh out of it, and it was a great bit. <laughs> in fact, it's on the um, – in, in Rockality, there's a uh, – uh, there's a um, th there's a video of it. I asked, I asked uh, for permission to use it. And I, I tell the story uh, in the Rockality page. There's a couple stories I wrote. So – Anyway, it's all good stuff, man. That's part of being a great performer and being in a band where you have freedom to do it. How are you now with the, with the new hips? Do you feel are there are there things you you can't do, or are there new things that you can do that you haven't done in a oh, while? Oh yeah, no, no, all that stuff went out the window. I mean, the new hips like motion; they don't like impacts. That if I keep playing basketball, I'll destroy them in two or three years. Wow! So I've had and I can shoot around, but I can't. Play. I mean, I played vicious, crazy basketball three-on-three, five-on-five. So, you know, I shoot around, but I can't do that. Uh, the trampoline's in the closet. Uh, I still do the pirouettes because it looks dramatic, but I'm only jumping up a few inches. So, 
Yeah, look, man, I want to hang on to him. I want him to last. I'm 10 years in. I don't want to have to rip him out again because that's an even more dangerous thing to do. So I'm trying to be smart about it. I'm dancing around and jumping around with no pain. And it's every day and every show I get to do that's a blessing. Just walk around my home is a blessing. So uh, pain-free. So I had a great surgeon. God bless him. And I'm going to try to hang on to him. Tell me what the rest of your summer looks like. Um, right now, I just got off the road. I'm, I'm still doing more phoners, trying to promote my record, let people know about it. I'm excited about that. I want to keep spreading the word. But right now, I'm, I'm just kind of um, taking it easy and being home. I, I, I've been missing in action quite a bit this year. And unexpectedly, um, Neil and Crazy Horse, we've started working on a new album that we're excited about. Neil has some great new songs and uh, well, you know, he's mentioned it on his uh, New Young Archives site, which is so fabulous that he's considering doing some shows in the fall. It's not definite. And considering releasing a record, which is not definite. <laughs> so I'm just going to enjoy being home. I know Bruce had mentioned he's had some songs for E Street, and maybe later in the year we'll start recording, and maybe we'll play next year. And again, these are all beautiful ideas, and from my perspective, I hope it leads to someday being able to buy a ticket, and that's not today. Got it. So right now I'm just kind of, wow, I did this. I made a record I'm proud of. I did a great tour with a band I love, and I'm home. I'm just going to enjoy being home and, you know, try to take care of my health and um, just kind of ease into whatever the next chapter is. Well, I, I love the record, and congratulations on it. Um, and it, it's no surprise to me that you're such a nice guy, and, and I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you spreading the word, and it uh, means a lot. I'm proud of the record, and thanks for letting people know about it, and it was good chatting with you for sure. Well, there you go. Nils Lofgren. Uh, all things Nils Lofgren can be found at nilslofgren.com. Uh, wasn't he a sweet guy, by the way? What a sweetheart of a fella. I really liked him. Really nice guy, that Nils Lofgren. Go to his website, buy his music, and uh, go see him when he plays, uh, whether it's on his own or with Springsteen or with uh, Neil Young or whatever. Just go support Nils Lofgren. All right? And if you want to support me, just go to my website, alexgreenonline.com, or follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor, or follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast, or just email me, for God's sakes, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. Maybe there's somebody you want me to get on the show. Maybe there's someone you want me to bring back. Put in your request, and I will see what I can do. Okay? Just a reminder that Stereo Embers, the podcast, is located anywhere that you get podcasts. Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Last.fm, uh, whatever, whatever is left of iTunes, we're there. So subscribe, leave a rating, thank you in advance for your kind words and your five stars, hint, hint. Thank you, as always, for listening to the program. Let's close things off with another new song from Nils Lofgren. This is City Lights. Enjoy it, and I will see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Don't these city lights bring these streets to light? Don't these crazy nights bring us together? Any rainy day you can dance your blues away. Don't these city lights 
Yeah. 